So this episode, uh, we talk about the death penalty and execution, and there's a bit of a reference to blood and gore and stuff like that. Stay safe. Stay safe. I'm going to slip it in really casually as if I'm not planning to say it, as if the mic has just caught me talking about it. I'm going to explain what um, Candle Nights is. Cool. Uh, yeah. Just just so you know that I'm just about to start talking oh, as if. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We've been talking okay. about this. Thought. Yeah. Are we allowed mm. to take their thing? I don't think it's taking. I think they want it to be used. Oh, okay, good. Mm. Oh, candle lights. Yeah. Where is it coming from? I read the wiki and I didn't understand it, so I just renamed it so anyway. So, candle lights. Candle lights was a creation by the McElroy brothers, um, who do Mubin Bam, my brother, my brother, and me, and the Adventure Zone, as well as Sawbones and a lot of crap things. of other things. There are a lot of <laughs> yeah, McElroy products. Um, so, that a couple of years ago, they had a. Um, an episode where they were talking I think they said something like happy holidays or happy Christmas and then they corrected themselves and said oh happy holidays and Hanukkah and all the rest and what stuff. What is the best better way for us to... Yeah and how how not to just prioritise one and then sort of make up for ourselves afterwards so then they were like oh candle nights because I think mm-hmm. most celebrations have candles around this Something time. To do and with light. Yeah light and celebrations and and it's pretty uh, Les Misy candle yeah, nights. I was just oh, thinking yeah, silver candle nights. Yeah, like, candlestick yeah. nights. A good emphasis in this <laughs> last couple of chapters. podcast where we cry over our good boy who is not very tall. <laughs> this is Nemo, your moderator. And the littlest boy. And the littlest, the littlest boy. boy. You're the middlest, middlest boy. boy yeah. Who uses they them pronouns. This is Stevie, the actual littlest boy. <laughs> she her pronouns. This is Grace, the tallest boy who uses they them pronouns. Oh, so last week... I said I didn't look very hard for that one character and meaning in the novels of Victor Hugo. I looked a tiny, tiny bit harder when <laughs> oh, I came across it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, I was like 20 minutes of the podcast last week. I know, but it's still useful to use reviews. <laughs> but I found, I found some of it. I'm really good at digging yeah. up sources that don't want you to have them for free. Yeah. And I did it. So here's, so from Characters and Meaning, um, just that Hugo either has, his style of describing characters is external or, like, internal, mm-hmm. and that for the bishop, his physical description uh, is almost exclusively downplayed um, because attention is generally drawn to his ex- Wait, no, that didn't make sense. Yeah, no, it, it does, because, sorry, I immediately went, oh yeah, because, like, on to us you get, like, five pages of description of every single pore on his body, <laughs> and then the bishop, you are kind of left to, he was short. And elegant. And, and elegant. He was very elegant. And, and slightly graceful. stout, and you get a lot on his clothing, I guess. Yeah, so that it was, uh, he only refers heavily to their appearance if there's some symbolic importance. Mm. So for the bishop, 
it's not about his appearance, it is his deeds. There's, in sort of, in reference to the bishop, any stuff which is appearance-based is mostly faded grandeur. Hmm. Anything which is the bishop, there's sort of, there's a reference of him, you know, when we find out what he does on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> um, at two o'clock, if the weather is fine, he goes out for a walk. And we, there's the most detailed description of him so far. And he's wearing all, like, purple and gold, mm. which for me was kind of a... Emperor? <laughs> he's wearing all, like, purple and gold, which doesn't really match with a lot of the description because, you know, a lot of... I don't know whether it was still the case by that time, but purple and gold were, like, expensive dyes. And obviously he's the bishop in that. But, um, like, in the next paragraph, he wears this big purple and gold cloak because his vestments he has worn them for so long that they're really that they're threadbare and he doesn't want everyone to see that they're threadbare so he wears this big thick cloak even in the middle of summer (laughs) (laughs) javert (coughs) like javert like javert right like sweaty cloak boys in the summer cloak boys from les mis who (laughs) work so hard and who don't spend any money on clothing Mm. and so Mm. just wear their big cloaks or change really yeah Yeah. they just i think they're just naked underneath the big like great cloaks (laughs) yeah there's like the first chapter that we read this week is chapter four which is just whack it's like the craziest chapter because the first half of it is like sarcastic shit from bishop muriel like that that first bit which was about him being rude to madame magloire well teasing gently teasing like and it's it's all him being gently teasing like he's speaking to this um you know that i think she's his cousin or, or some sort and she's talking a long time for ages and ages and ages about the uh, the inheritances of her three sons because that's all she's worried about at the time. And it's really cute because it says, um, um, as a rule, the bishop listened in silence to these blameless and forgivable maternal <laughs> effusions. Could you just imagine him like thinking? And then later on, it was like on one occasion he appeared to be more abstracted than usual. For heaven's sake, cousin, said the lady in mild ex- um, ex- exasperation. What are you thinking about? I'm thinking, said the bishop, of the words uttered by, I believe, St. Augustine. Put your hopes in him who has no successor. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all sarcastic shit like, like that. Like He gets a invitation to the funeral of like a local aristocrat, like one of the local noblemen. And um, the invitation is like, at least 50% of it is just this guy's titles. Like, and the, his family's titles and that. Says Charles Bonvenu. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah literally, yeah. And uh, he's just like, death has a broad back. What a great load of honours it can be made to get made to bear, and how assiduous are the minds of men that they can use even the tomb as in service of vanity. And wow. it's like, just all, like, good burns from Bishop Miriam. <laughs> 
these were my favorite chapters to read, yeah. I think, because yeah. they're just so nice to go through. And also, yeah. like, you can get kind of confused by the really, like, nice language, and then it's like, oh, no, he literally no, was just... just dazing off when his cousin was talking and went, mm, yeah, I'm glad I don't have children. Yeah. Fuck you. Literally. <laughs> There's this, like, proper skin flint, super rich um, merchant. My favorite one, sorry. Is this your, this is, is my favorite one. one? Yeah, this is a, this is my favorite one as well. It was amazing, and um, this young vicar comes to the cathedral at, G- at Jean, Dean, <laughs> and like pre- makes this beautiful sermon about like how the rich can like reduce their chance of them going and suffering in hell, because, like and ascending to paradise by being good to the poor and like giving you know giving money to the poor. And among the congregation was this guy called Monsieur Gerberand. 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 <laughs> and um, who was this skinflint dude who, like, never gave any money to the poor and was the worst. And um, it was observed after this sermon that on Sundays he handed a single sou to the old beg- beggar woman clustered outside the cathedral door. There were six of them to share it. Noting the event, the bishop smiled and said to his sister... Monsieur Gerberand is buying a penny worth of paradise. <laughs> He's so off. salty. He's so salty. Like, I love him. I love him so much. And that is, like, the first half of this entire chapter. There's loads of really important stuff in chapter four. Um, there's a rad line, which Nemo's going to have fun with, because it's, um, he judged nothing in haste without taking account of the circumstances. He said... Let me see how the fault ar- arose. And I'm like, <laughs> called the fuck out. <laughs> Which, I'm sorry, is a direct reference to Javert later. Like, there is no way that it's not. You, Stevie, made a reference to that last week. Wasn't there um, one of the quotes that was saying something about how. Um, oh, the importance someone, of chance. Yeah, was ignoring fate. the importance. Yeah. yeah. Like, soon after this. Um, he judged nothing in haste, etc., etc., calling side-eyeing Javert real hard. There's a bit where he's talking about how um, temptation, but I don't think he's talking about sexual stuff. I think mm. he's talking about, like, like to be human is to sin, and, you know, mm. the normal man cannot but sin. There's a cool line, which I think is a, a cool reference to Valjean later as well, which is, to be a saint is to be an exception, to be a true man is the rule. Uh, fail, sin if you must, but be upright. To sin as little as possible is the law for men. To sin not at all is the dream for angels. Achievable. Yeah. yeah. And definitely a Valjean thing. Like, he definitely has crimes and he, like, later on, even though he's called a saint a lot of times, he does, he does the crimes. <laughs> that good crime boy. Yeah. And he carries a lockpick with him all the time. Yeah. So actually, oh, it's like a file. It's like um, so that he can file his way out of handcuffs. PTSD <laughs> <laughs> oh, about handcuffs. Yeah, literally. Or he's just a very safe bondage man. <laughs> like I feel like the most important thing that happens in this chapter is this revolutionary slash murderer, depending on <laughs> how. Right wing you are, I guess. <laughs> um, so basically how it all starts off is that he's supposedly sentenced to death as a murderer and there's a big hubbub about the trial in the town. And um, on the day 
before his execution, the almoner, the priest for the prison, falls ill. So, you know, someone needs to do the last rites and that sort of thing, mm. and all ye um, seeking forgiveness sort of things. Last um, confession? Yeah, that's the, that's the actual word for what I was looking for. <laughs> Thank you. And um, the local priest was sent for, but sort of refused to do it because he was like, well, this isn't, you know, this isn't my job to pardon this murderer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and bless, guess who comes to <laughs> the aid? <laughs> who would it be but Monseigneur Myriel, our angel? Um, and he goes to, okay, what does mountebank mean? M-O-U-N-T-E, bank. Because if it means, Mont- like, revolutionary, I'll be really <laughs> pissed off. Um, a person who deceives others, especially in order to trick them out of their money, a charlatan. Well, see, that's what I thought. It was that sort mm. of word, rather than... So a person who sold patent medicines in public places <laughs> is the historical, so... Mm. But your version was also implied he was an ex-revolutionary. Uh, yeah. Or at least I got the impression that he was. Is this the... This isn't the dog house one. No. Because this definitely mm. colours all yeah. our secret understanding. Yeah. Well, maybe we've all got the wrong end of the stick and this is not the one with the revolutionary. He gets guillotined to death. Was he treasonous? He murdered someone. I don't know, maybe... Is the line, at least you didn't kill the king, said no. by Muriel? No, I might have just assumed that you were talking about this one bit and you weren't talking about this bit. We, we goofed. We, we had that. We, we done diddly done goofed. Yeah, no, we just assumed that the story was yeah. the same story, but... Yeah. Sure. I mean, murder? Okay, carry on from so, murder. I'm not side-eyeing this <laughs> translation real hard for conflating revolution with murder. Because <laughs> that would have been real intense. Um... So um, Muriel goes to this guy's cell and like holds his hand and it's like spends the rest of the day and night praying for him and you know it's carefully noted that he doesn't eat or sleep or anything in that time and um, it's really very beautiful how it's written it's it's like um, he was the man's father brother friend his bishop only to bless him the man was about to die in utter despair. Death for him was an abyss trembling upon that awful threshold. He recoiled in in horror. And the sort of the like the idea that because he's just been condemned to die condemned to die, it's almost like he's sort of pierced the veil and all he sees is the blackness coming for him and he's like appearing beyond this world through those face faithful rents. Not faithful. Fateful rents. Fate. Fate. Nice. <laughs> Peering beyond this world through those fateful rents. He saw nothing but darkness. The bishop caused him to see light. And it's like, more of the bishop bringing light to people. Because mm. like, there's a big, you know, a big theme of, of the bishop with light. And um, the candles. next... Candles. <laughs> yeah, then yeah. the next day, um, the bishop walks by this murderous side right up to the scaffold on which he is going to be executed, like, like the, whole, the whole time he's by his side. And um, there's sort of this idea that the people see this miserable, like, this who was a miserable man who's about to be, who, like, yesterday was completely in despair. And he's described as radiant. 
because mm. he's sort of come to peace in in like is now seeking the forgiveness of God for his actions rather than being sort of not <laughs> um, before he's killed. The bishop kiss, kisses him and says, "Whom man kills, God restores to life. Whom the brothers pursue, the father redeems. Pray and believe and go onwards into into life. Your father is there, and it's like." beautiful the whole thing is it's really powerful and really beautiful and um this man is executed and when the bishop sort of like turns from the execution to the crowd the um the crowd pulls back because he's got this sort of absolute expression of just serenity and like the only way that I can think of it is like a sort of like a disassociative sort of mm. like the way that it's the language it's described in is quite sort of disassociative and um, it's a sort of described as it being like sublime which I can only think of as in like the sort of gothic sense mm. of sublime which is like awe-inspiring but also terrifying mm. sort of that's how it is and there's this this passage which afterwards just describes the guillotine which is really really powerful and a bit terrifying and i could probably read the whole thing because it's all real good stuff and it's like i would like to pitch and i would like anyone to argue with me or nemo to argue with me or stevie to argue with me like i would say that the guillotine is Javert. Okay. Like that that's sure. the way it comes like that okay. for me that's how I've how I've read it. It's like hmm maybe false memory, but I swear I swear somewhere Javert is compared to a guillotine. Mm. Mm. Interesting. I, like something like his smiles or his yeah. statue was like a guillotine or something. Maybe okay. that's just because you said, I said it. it. Okay. So why would you why would you describe there's this like the the whole bit is re- is really like it really hits you the whole thing and it's um it's it starts with as for the bishop himself the spectacle of the guillotine caused him a shock from which he was slow to recover and it's described as being something that you can't be ambivalent about <laughs> I was just laughing because um the sight of it was like a shock to recover from is literally how they describe Javert's smile. <laughs> like when he like yeah. smiles people step back because it's truly terrifying when they see him smile yeah i'm sorry <laughs> and isn't isn't something to do with the guillotine called the guillotine smile or something like that or oh, the kind maybe. of curved blade yeah maybe or like the grinning teeth of the guillotine or something maybe i'm just making things up now i can see why because mm. it's like that sort of like that gape with the blade like mm-hmm. the I haven't heard that. That's cool, though, if that's the case. TM me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like, um, it, there's this really cool idea, um, which is, we may remain more or less open, open-minded on the subject of the death penalty, indisposed to commit ourselves so long as we have not seen the guillotine with our own eyes. So it's kind mm. of the idea that you can be sort of politically ambivalent before you've actually seen it. Which mm. is kind of relevant as well to. Javert! Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, is this kind of justice that you can't come back from, whether or not mm. it's correct? Mm. Is that the Javert thing? I think, like, the. 
idea is that there it's it's a a visual of pure violence that while you're thinking about the death penalty in a purely political way it's hard to think of that think of it in a very in the very literal sense mm. of sort of engineer this this machine of of pure violence like pure destruction and um the the big the big bit which is just rad the most cool description ever the guillotine is the ultimate expression of the law and its name is vengeance it is not neutral nor does it allow us to remain neutral he who sees it shudders in the most confounding dismay all social questions achieve their finality around that blade the scaffold is an image it is not merely a framework a machine a lifeless mechanism of wood iron and rope it is as though it were a being having its own dark purpose, as though the framework saw, the machine listened, and the mechanism understood, as though that arrangement of wood and iron and rope expressed a will. It is a hideous picture which its presence evokes. It seems to be most terribly a part of what it does. It is the executioner's accomplice. It consumes, devouring flesh and drinking blood. It is a kind of monster created by the, the judge and the craftsman, a spectre seeming to live an awful life born of the death it deals. I think it's actually almost the opposite of Javert. Like, if Hugo had been going for like a true monster antagonist, yeah. mm. the guillotine as an, a police inspector mm. would have been a true monster. Mm. But because Javert is described so much as like metal and wire and like unfeeling and neutral mm. in the not in like a true neutral kind of sense but um he is that, that lawful evil thing where it's like yeah it is i it have is the, law, the law and, yeah. and and so that's kind of a neutrality for mm. him i think in the like or if neutral was opposed to emotional Whereas this is obviously mm. described very emotionally yeah. with the yeah. blood and yeah. the gore. But it doesn't the... start that. That's the thing that, like, mm. the beginning of it for me feels a lot more Javert. And then afterwards, it go. It does that thing where it goes from being unemotional clinical death into horror, like into mm. the sort of the, the horror aspect of it. And that was what I found was quite interesting. Mm. But I just thought, like, that whole passage was so powerful <laughs> it was mm. so intense i think the thing for me that makes the guillotine javert is the the guillotine is the ultimate expression of the of the law and its name is vengeance it is not neutral nor does it allow us to remain neutral so here's the thing a lot of time it seems like javert is very obsessed with valjean but he has like nothing in his life apart from valjean like he's just following this one man the entire time and to an extent it's true but there is a moment where later on um, Valjean makes another escape from Javert and he pretends to die. Javert opens this newspaper and it says um, Jean Valjean died this morning, he jumped off a ship. And Javert goes, well, good, and then closes the newspaper. It's after the Madeleine stuff, mm. but it's before the Cosette stuff, the Paris stuff. Um, so again, vengeance isn't something that I would use yeah. against him as well because I don't think he's a vengeance kind of mm. person. Just the yeah, obsessed with law definitely, mm. 
vengeance, maybe not so much. Like when I finished when I finished reading this chapter, I was just like, how did this start with <laughs> like a joke about Muriel being short and <laughs> lots of like Saki comments because it's super intense. And then after that real intense thing, the name of the next chapter is How Monsignor Bienvenu Made His Cassocks Last Too Long. <laughs> it's like, having done so, he breakfast on rye bread soaked in the milk of his own cows. It's like, <laughs> okay. I think this is one of those things where it, it was published weekly, monthly. Monthly. Mm. And so you'd have one one time where it's like and then the guillotine is like Javert but you don't know him yet so blah 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 and then next week it's like and he dipped his rye bread in milk (laughs) and then he really liked his cloves and people would be like okay cool I'm still buying it but (laughs) it's like the filler chapters in like an anime or something the rest of this chapter is kind of it's him being frugal and being blessed (laughs) just some more of that oh that that was something I was going to ask as someone who hasn't read it, so mm. don't have as much or any emotional attachment. Mm. Does it ever reach a point where he's just so good that you're like, I fucking get it. You're so <laughs> goddamn good. But does that never start? Not like, really, because of the not... comedy. Because because mm. he keeps being like mm. like doing these slap bags and stuff. If he was just good all the time, he wouldn't have been yeah. such a good example. But because he's so salty as well. Yeah, you're like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, the source is... Focus so much on how good he is that mm. I don't know if it, that in itself is interesting because yeah, all I read is he's so good, he's the only good one, mm. he's so good. I think so that's, kindly. That's probably why I think some people can't get through the beginning because mm. they just read it and sort of only see the good stuff, and it's like, yes, we get it, you're a good man, mm. get on with the rest mm. of the story or something. Because that was the impression I got from you guys talking about him even last week when I was re- mm. listening to the episode. Yeah, just having your opinion versus what I've got to get of him. Mm. It's quite nice, like, getting to hear him being, like, amusing. Mm. Mm. But, well, that's the thing, it's like, it's the difference between, like, the important themes of Les Mis to, like, the day-to-day yeah. silliness. Mm. We get a lot of the day-to-day stuff. <laughs> but but I mean also with these big things as we kind of discovered there's a lot more of Muriel and we're already confusing like parts yeah. like yeah. um yeah. he does a lot of good things and a couple of times I've been like oh yeah I kind of vaguely remember that and a couple of times I've been like I don't remember that at all um he like writes about how in each book of the bible um, God is referred to as a different thing and he goes through like oh in this one he's referred to as this and it's like things like the Amal- the almighty the creator like liberty wisdom and truth and sanctity and justice and you know then father and that sort of thing and then like it just ends with but Solomon names thee compassion which is the most beautiful of all thy names oh that's so nice wow and it's like we should all try to be more like Bishop Muriel. Yeah. <laughs> like, mm. yeah, that wasn't me coming for him. I just yeah, wanted to like no, know you. No, no, no. Yeah, it doesn't. Like I like the actual power of the show not tell thing. Mm-hmm. That's I've not like thought about that in such a direct <laughs> way. Like that's super cool. I like that. Can I tell you about the most ridiculous thing that Victor Hugo does in this episode? Okay. You know he's writing like um. 
Meryl is writing notes in books that the notes aren't about. He's just like, he writes an essay about, <laughs> about the theological writings of Charles Louis Hugo, <laughs> Bishop of Ptolemies, the great-great-uncle of the present writer. <laughs> there's an asterisk. And then on the next page, there's a, there's a note from the translator which just says, Hugo's claim to be descended from the bishop appears to be unfounded. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, and here it is necessary that we would give an exact account of the dwelling of Monseigneur the Bishop of (laughs) Dean. Which is just so, so Hugo. It's like, it's not, actually. (laughs) So it's two floors, three rooms on each floor. There's a cow shed, a quarter acre garden. And the garden is split in four in the shape of a cross. Oh, very nice. Very, very nice. religious. <laughs> yeah. It's not noted that it's in the shape of a cross, but lots of other stuff are in the shape of a cross which are noted. <laughs> <laughs> Vegetables in three of the plots, and in the last, there's flowers. Um, Madame Magloire says, once said teasing, teasingly to him, Monseigneur, you believe in making use of everything, but this fourth plot is wasted. Salads are more useful than flowers. You are wrong, replied the bishop. The beautiful is as useful as the useful. Then after a pause he added, more so, perhaps. But there's my favourite, th- my favourite thing. It talks then about like him spending loads of time in, in the garden and like he doesn't really know anything about gardening but he's trying his best. He's just like weeding and hoeing and he's... <laughs> <laughs> he didn't study plants, he merely loved flowers. He had a great respect for men of learning but even more respect for the ignorant. And without forfeiting either loyalty, he watered his beds every summer evening with a green watering can. Oh, oh no, that's so cute. And that made me cry. (laughs) I cried. It made me cry. There's only 11 chairs in the house. Oh, that's good to know. But what if he has a dozen... Twelve guests. What they do is take a walk in the garden instead. Oh, Oh, he does that. Thanks, Hugo. Yeah. Well, actually, actually, sorry, to be more specific, there's actually 12 chairs in the house, Mm -hmm. but one of them is in his sister's room, and it's so wide that they can't get it down the narrow stairs. Mm. So if there's 12 guests, then they have to walk the gardens. He must have made it 11 just so that people would ask, Mm. but what if you have 12 guests? Actually, also, there's actually, technically, now that I remember, there's 13 chairs in the house, because there's actually one chair but it's only one of the legs has been broken off, so it only works if you lean against a wall. This is the stuff they put in the bullshit quizzes. Yeah. <laughs> like one person remembers. Yeah. 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 Only true Lemis fans will get all of this mm. questions right. Like And um Mademoiselle Baptistine, which is the name of his sister, like so she has this big chair that can't fit down the narrow staircase that is it you know, it was gilded, used to be gilded, and had like nice flowered silk on it and stuff and there's this detail which is really odd she it's long been her dream to own a mahogany chair with yellow velvet on it okay this is all she wants but it would have cost at least 500 francs and she's been saving for five years and only got 42 francs and 10 sous so in the end she had finally given up on the idea and then after that, all it says is, do we ever realise our fondest dreams? Oh my God. 
of the bishop's bedroom <laughs> which is which is actually actually it's quite an interesting one because it's all it's like faded splendor which i think i've mentioned before mm. in this theme. theme theme because you know he was a he was a rich boy he was born as an aristocrat and like the rest of the house is all like very very modest very frugal and his his room is still really really frugal but it's got these little references to who he used to be there's like um a once silvered copper crucifix on the wall basically and there's like a picture frame that used to be gilded and like these things called fire dogs Pokemon, <laughs> <laughs> which literally sounds like something from D D. like literally we get the description finally of the silverware <laughs> yeah so he's still got um, six silver knives and forks and a large silver soup ladle and also two gleaming silver candlesticks uh, that's crazy they're so pretty they're so pretty and it makes Madame Magloire very happy because she doesn't get much things because he's so frugal and all she wants is to live a comfortable slightly happy life um, first no chair and then, <laughs> and then, yeah, an interesting bit where he actually has once remarked, I should find it hard to give up eating with silver, which puts a lot into perspective that this is a man who has given up on everything, but he would find it very difficult to give up eating with silver. And he doesn't lock, uh, he doesn't lock the doors to his house because he believes he needs to be like accessible at all times to his flock. And like one of the priests at one point comes to him and says, you know, oh, is it is it safe for you to be doing this? And he says, there is a priest's courage just as there is the courage of a of a colonel of dragoons, but ours must be quiet. This last chapter is deceptively because when you when you were saying before, oh yeah, six is just like showing about his house and stuff. Oh yeah, and yeah, it's like, no, no, yeah, it's, yes, yeah. yeah. Hugo is literally yeah. laying out the floor plan for a thief to come mm. in the night. Mm. <laughs> everything is relevant. Eleva- everything is relevant in mm. that. Okay. Yeah, mm. it's there is there is a small cupboard where all of the silver <laughs> cutlery is locked, but it must be noted that the key is never taken out of the lock. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you bother, Muriel? Like, he he has faith in man. He has that good faith in man. Mm. And everything happens for a reason. Fate and chance. chance. I think he's been... Shut up. <laughs> I think he's been looking. I think secretly, I feel like he's been looking for a, a good reason to, to not have the silverware. Mm. For someone to take it from him. Mm. He's not necessarily strong enough to give away that last vestige of who he used to be. Mm. So he needs someone to take it from him. And then make him the ultimate ultimate martyr. Yeah. So, this was Red and Barricades. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Unlock your doors, this camera. (laughs) (laughs) No, 
please do not. Please do not do that. Do not listen to Stevie. And this metaphor is JJ Santa, but reverse Santa. Give Santa gifts this candle night. Yeah. What are you doing? Unlock your door. Let the thieves in. I actually, he, later yes. on, later on, Jean Valjean is nothing now. He breaks into people's houses with coins and hides them in their house. That's still illegal. <laughs> and then he's like, people come out in the streets like, who the fuck left like this money? Uh, obviously like, this I... didn't roll out of my pocket. I am poor. It's probably considered a death threat in some cultures. <laughs> yes. Honestly, yeah. And then like, oh, Jubei gets a sniff of this and he's like, how can anyone think, like, honestly, what kind of vigilante this could just only be. <laughs> One man whose heart tried to grow three sizes this year. <laughs> this episode was produced by Nemo Martin and Julian Yap. Um, Julian is doing our transcriptions. If you want to help Julian with that, um, just send us a message. If we did anything wrong, or if you have any comments, or if we did anything good, or if you just want to talk to us, um, send us an email at lamespodcast at gmail.com, L-E-S-M-I-S podcast at gmail.com and we have a twitter at lamers podcast our tumblr and website is breadandbarricades.tumblr.com and this is a captain's collections podcast Yay! um our theme tune which uh jd wasabi has made and who has made it into this beautiful beautiful candle nights theme which i have listened to on loop for like 10 hours it's, it's so ridiculous nice. i love it's it so, so nice. much you can download it from her website, which we're going to put in the show notes. Um, and you can probably, yeah, you'll be able to download the Candle Nights version as well if you want. Um, it's pay what you want. Um, so obviously you can help Jade. That would be really cool of you. But also, yeah, it's... She it's, puts a lot of time into this. She, she puts a lot of time into <laughs> it. It's really great. Thank you to Jade for audio production. And that's it. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Merry, happy, merry, happy happy candle candle nights. (laughs) And a swell new year. wonderful we're talking about the guillotine and the death of a murderer and and, and jade is playing animal crossing <laughs> <laughs>